Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Well, the IMF today cut world growth forecast on weaker U.S. and China outlooks. Let's get the latest. Uh, we can do that with Ellen Zentner, chief U.S. economist for Morgan Stanley. She grew up in Austin, Texas. Did you know that, Matt? I did know that. You yes. did know that. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, bachelor's in business administration. Well, I, yeah, Ohio was awesome, but I am a little jealous. I feel like growing up in Texas would be the second best. That would be cool thing to growing up in Ohio. Yeah, Austin is like the it town right now. Now, back then, it was like up and coming. Right. Yeah, Let's ask Ellen. I know, Ellen. Ellen, tell us about Austin. Should we be re relocating there, like all the kids are doing? I've been there since the 1970s, and thankfully <laughs> I own real estate there, so I'm, I'm on the winning end of it right now. But it's a shock if you grew up there and you go back to visit. Right. It's like, what? I have to wait for a reservation? What do you mean? <laughs> I can't just walk in anywhere? And get some barbecue. Um, let me tell you, as shocking as it is, if you grew up there, it is still a really cool town when you go back to visit. I, lo I, just, I just love the old keep Austin weird. You know, that's pretty I cool. like the new uh, Austin because they put in Coda, and I've seen um, Formula One there. I've seen MotoGP mm -hmm. there. It's it, absolute an absolute blast. Such a great yeah, track. I think that was a good move when they when they put it in there. Hey, you know, I used to do economic development modeling for the state of Texas when GW <laughs> was still governor there, and boy, we really did a good job at attracting those big uh, venues. You know, it's a yeah. great place to do business. It By is. the way, you know what? It, uh, I often think of the housing um, bubble or the housing situation. Maybe it's a bubble, maybe not. Um, when I think of Austin, how do you look at, you know, the incredible rise in prices that we've seen coupled with the uh, lack of inventory? Well, the lack of inventory is always the number one reason why that pushes up prices. And of course, home builders finally catch up. And then that's usually when the cycle turns. But I think this time, you know, we did uh, some work back in 2019, pre-COVID, where we looked at the demographic trends in the U.S., where millennials plus Gen Z are our biggest uh, demographic bubble ever. I mean, they dwarf the baby boomers. And when we looked at their preferences and how they approach housing, it set up for a really strong trend of fundamental demand for housing, and specifically single-family rentals, because they still want mobility. Um, and want to be able to work wherever. Then COVID hits, and it's that additional catalyst. So I think we're seeing a lot of migration patterns around the U.S. that were already gravitating toward these areas with high home prices already that have just continued uh, to pressure those areas higher. Now, eventually, home prices will be so out of line with, with fundamental income that it will push people back toward uh, multifamily units or delay their home buying well, decisions. Uh, but you've got to reach that point. We also had, obviously, incredibly low interest rates, plus a ton of fiscal stimulus. Did that add to it? And are we set up for um, a reckoning now? Yeah, well, I think so. Certainly it added to it. I mean, I think out of out of all that we've talked about, including COVID, um, the number one determinant is always the cost of, of housing, which the interest rates are a big chunk of that. So you've got record low mortgage rates. 
um, that had moved lower from already very low levels uh, in the last cycle. So that was that was a huge boost behind the refi wave, freeing up more income, getting more people into homes, being able to afford them. So you know, naturally, right as the cycle gets, uh, you know, the economy gets tighter and tighter. The Fed does want to slow that down. And they slow that down by restricting access to credit, and they're doing that by raising rates. Um, now, how quickly they raise rates will matter. I mean, the, they don't want to choke off economic activity. Uh, and so, you know, the, the fear out there in the market is that the Fed's going to hike in March and just keep on going, almost, you know, being deaf to any kind of incoming data or financial conditions. And that's just not the case, right? The Fed will still be uh, Fed path will be determined by incoming data. Um, but I tell you what, I'm most interested in that was also the case last cycle, and that is that unlike pre-GFC cycles, the household balance sheet is locked in at an extraordinarily low fixed rate. So one thing that we saw in the last cycle is what's, what we, when we finished deleveraging, uh, we never levered back up, and the longer that lo- the rates remain low, the more uh, chance you give for the balance sheet to transition into those very low fixed rates. The majority of debt we hold is in mortgages, and the outstanding yield on uh, effective yield on all of those mortgages is in the threes. Uh, and so it's just we're just very insensitive to a rising interest rate environment right now in terms of the household side. And hey, Ellen, so talk it's to us. Encouraging. Talk to us just real quickly. What was your take on the IMF move today to cut the GDP forecast? Does that surprise you at all? No. I mean, I think, you know, what we've seen is that the IMF tends to get into this pattern of lagging behind uh, changes in, in street forecasts. I mean, you know, when the Build Back Better plan, so, so as you mentioned, it's driven by China and U.S. downgrades. Well, I downgraded first quarter GDP growth um, sharply on the back of the Build Back Better plan that failed to pass simply because we had assumed that that child tax credit that low-income households were getting would be extended. And so that takes a chunk out of uh, personal consumption in the first quarter, besides the Omicron effects. You've got to account for the Omicron effects as well. Uh, you know, we haven't even started to get the really bad data yet because we haven't gotten January data yet. So as we're moving into February and we're already on the other side of Omicron, we're going to be getting January data confirming just how big of a slowdown there was. So you yep. could get as low as a one handle on GDP this quarter. But the Fed's looking through that and yep. going to give that a pass. And here's why. Because there are so many factors you can point to that are one-offs. Um, yep. So I think they're going to deliver that March hike. I know you're going to be talking to Danielle about that. She's a, yep. she's a, she's a great gal. Yep. Um, but, but, yeah, but I think the growth scare is real, and I right. think people have been building that into their forecast. All right, Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting your thoughts. Ellen Zettner, Chief U.S. Economist for Morgan Stanley and an avid fly fisher person. All right, let's talk about the consumer. We had some better than expected numbers out today. Joining us to break it down, Lynn Franco, Director of the Economic Indicators and Surveys at the Conference Board. Lynn, uh, talk to us about the consumer. How is he and or she looking? Uh, The consumer is holding up, I think, remarkably well, um, even though we did have a bit of a dip in January where we saw the index decline. Uh, But mixed news there. We saw that consumers gave the present situation a stronger rating than they had in December, a little bit of softening in terms of their expectations, um, but holding up remarkably well. So talk to us about, you know, one of the things I think when I think about the consumer is 
the labor market. You know, I keep hearing about there are three, four, five million people that are not back in the labor market, yet I see for sales, I mean, I see, you know, help wanted signs everywhere. How does the labor market play into consumer confidence data that you see? It plays a very big role, and actually we're getting some very uh, positive readings. So in terms of the percent of consumers who tell us that jobs are plentiful, we did see a little bit of a dip from 55.9 to 55.1, but by historical standards, a very strong reading. And the percent that tell us uh, you know, jobs are hard to get dipped a little bit. So I think they're very positive on the labor market. A little bit of softening in their expectations, um, but still strong. So we expect that this, coupled with you know some of the wage increase that we're seeing, to help uh, continue to support consumer confidence in the months ahead. Is there any concern about Fed rate rises? I mean, we've gone from expecting two to seeing three in the dots to now Goldman Sachs forecast four, saying the risk is to the upside. Um, does this hit consumer confidence at all? It's not really hitting consumer confidence. I mean, we do ask a question about interest rates, um, and it's not really having any significant impact. Um, you know, we'll see if it does and uh, when it occurs, soften growth a little bit, and that could hurt uh, confidence. But it's not having an impact, and neither is inflation. Surprisingly, we've actually seen back-to-back months declined in consumers' uh, inflation expectations. So it seems that uh, at least the heightened uncertainty and concern that they were expressing in November seems to be cooling a bit. All right, Lynn, thank you so much. We appreciate that. As always, getting that monthly data check from you. Lynn Franco, Director of Economic Indicators and Surveys at the Conference Board. On the train today, Matt, there was like, again, nobody on the train in my commute in here. That's awesome. People are not coming into the office. I don't know when or if they ever will. I don't know what that means for the people who own these beautiful, huge, sky-high office towers here in New York City. Uh, but let's check in and get some with a professional who might have some color on that. Uh, Hassam uh, Naji, president and CEO of Marcus and Milchep. That's a publicly traded company on the NYSE, MMI, uh, for those folks that are interested in the, the real estate biz. So, uh, Hassam, thanks so much for joining us here. I don't get it. I don't think people are coming back to work. I don't know who is going to ever take up a lot of this commercial office space. What do you think? Well, there's definitely a transition going on within the office sector. Uh, if you zoom out, commercial real estate has such a menu of options from drugstores and fast food restaurants being very, very stable and have done very well throughout the pandemic. Uh, we call necessity retail, grocery-anchored stores. Uh, ironically, in retail, doing very well. Apartments on fire because yep, demand yep. is at record levels. And you switch over to the office buildings and seniors' housing facilities. Those are the two where there is a lot of uncertainty and clouds over future demand because of what's happened through the pandemic. People are changing lifestyles. They are working virtually, and they're going to be, we believe, uh, for uh, forever. But that doesn't mean that uh, the office market is in for a, a permanent doom and gloom in that you see de- new demand forming. New company formations are at a record level. Just in the last uh, nine months of uh, 2021, New York added almost 200,000 jobs. Uh, a lot of those jobs are being executed vir- uh, virtually right now. But as the virus becomes more of a uh, kind of a part of normal life and not a constant speed bump and you know resurgence and panic kind of an on and off interruption to business, 
in the next two to three years. We really do believe people will come back into the office because of the collaboration and teamwork. Demand will be less because people will be uh, in a hybrid work model, partly virtual, partly in the office. But new demand is going to also offset some of that. Short term, remember most leases that are in place now still have three and a half to four years before they expire. So the tenants are obligated to pay rent. So it's, it's kind of a buffer. But as these leases roll over, that's where the uncertainty kicks in. Will the new demand offset the hybrid work model? Or is the office market in for some you know, revaluations and price corrections? Well, and we've uh, seen we- kind of a bifurcation. You know, on Wall Street, there are some firms that are saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to reduce my um, commercial re- real estate bills and um, save some costs that way because I don't need as many people in the office. Others are saying, you know what, we need to lease extra space because we can't be sitting these people um, like little hamsters right next to each other in their tiny little bullpen the way right. we do it here. Right? Desks. I'm not I'm not criticizing the way we do it here. I love the way we do it here. I do as well. But um, not everybody likes to be sitting in these little desks and not have your own office and not have any space and not have any privacy. So, you know, you're seeing um, people go at this in different ways. That's exactly right. And we're seeing more uh, team-oriented space reconfiguration. Uh, You're seeing some of the tech giants, you know, acquire new office buildings. And and the fact that uh, many, many industries rely heavily on that in-person training, in-person interaction. And I do think, I mean, look at IBM, for example, that led the charge in telecommuting over the last 15 years. And a few years ago, they put an end to that because of the inefficiencies it was creating for the cultural part of their team collaboration and, and so on. People want to be together. They want to work together. I just don't think uh, we need to come back into the office you know, from 8 to 5 every single day. Uh, thanks to technology, the hybrid work model is actually you know, much more efficient. Uh, but from an office perspective, you have to wait to see what's going to make up the, uh, you know, the reduced demand. The good news is there's very little construction uh, at a at a national level, there are pockets where we had some buildings underway, and so supply is going to be a, a you know short term problem in light of the lower demand. But all in all, the office market uh, is out of the historical cycle of overbuilding and then crashing. That hasn't happened for the last two cycles. Miami, what a story there! I, maybe it's just because I'm in New York, and but I just hear so many stories of people relocating businesses, relocating personally residences to Miami. Is there any end in sight for the the growth of South Florida? Well, South Florida, Texas, Arizona, Nevada, all these um, states that are benefiting from the out-migration from California, New York, and some of the other states are actually seeing a surge in office demand. To your point, uh, we've done some case studies uh, for our office uh, investor clients uh, showing that in some of these pockets there is a dearth of office space and there's going to be a, a development wave because demand is exceeding supply. That migration was happening pre-COVID, but it, it basically got uh, significantly elevated yep. um, after the pandemic hit. Uh, we don't see it slowing down so much this year, but going into 2023, uh, it'll level off. And urban America, in New York in particular, San Francisco, Chicago, uh, will take time to recover, but three to five years from now, I think we'll be talking about what a great investment opportunity urban real estate was during this time. 
All right, Hassem, uh, we really appreciate uh, getting your thoughts. Hassem Naji, president and CEO of Marcus N. Milchap. Uh, that is a real estate development company. But, you know, it's interesting. You cannot get an apartment in New York City. Um, and But I just don't know where all the people are. I don't know where they're going. What are they doing? They're not coming into the offices, so I'm not sure what they're doing. I want to bring in Laura Modi. She is CEO and co-founder of Bobby, which is a uh, baby formula delivery startup, but she's also a board member of some startups that uh, have become big businesses that you know, TaskRabbit, for example, um, Eat Real, a former product operations exec uh, at Google Finance, and we're glad to have her on the program. Laura, thanks so much for your time. Um, talk to us, uh, t- uh, first of all, about what it's like doing business in startups or younger um, firms during the pandemic? I mean, do you have to just be able to pivot a lot faster? Do you have to be a lot more agile? Lovely to be here with you. I mean, absolutely. Um, I mean, now more than ever, the need to be agile, to watch the change in consumer trends is more important than ever. But I will say, I think as a startup, and especially one that predominantly operates online, we're given an opportunity to meet those consumer trends a lot easier and better than most companies can. So, Laura, talk to us about, again, your company focuses, focuses um, primarily on the baby formula delivery market. How has your business changed um, during the pandemic? Well, um, for many people, you've probably seen the news and the scarcity of infant formula today on retail shelves. So being a direct-to-consumer infant formula company, we've seen a huge trend of people coming online. Over the last year, the infant formula category has seen a 21% increase alone in people coming to purchase online. In Q4 of last year, Bobby really saw that impact with 187% growth in our sales. So we need to remove the anxiety of someone showing up to a retailer, not being able to buy the infant formula of choice, and have peace of mind that when they need their formula, they can get it on time wherever they are. By the way, uh, as someone who recently had a baby, I've got a lot of experience with this, and I got a couple of questions. Number one, it does seem to me, although maybe this is uh, pure snobbery, that the European formula market is better than the U.S. formula market in terms of the end product. Is that right? I love that you're calling this out. You know, I, ne- I always hate pointing fingers at any one formula or a collective of formulas to say one is better than another. But you're right. There is a clamoring for EU formula across this country. And it really comes down to the way the recipe is designed and the standards. If you look at the EU market, the last time that they have updated their standards uh, was in 2019. In comparison to here in the U.S., the last time was in the 1980s. So uh, to put simply, maybe there is some truth to people turning to EU formula. I also have noticed that, and this may be worse in the EU than in the U.S., there was a huge uh, push from um from hospitals and doctors towards breastfeeding, which is great. We all know it's a very healthy way to raise kids, but I don't know that everyone understands how difficult it can be for a lot of people. And there is a, um, a stigma on, at least in the EU, mothers who can't do it and go straight to formula. Is that, you think, going to change as we come up with healthier 
um, uh, formulas help and more nutritious ways to feed babies? I mean, a hundred percent. I mean, first off, it's amazing to hear you as a new dad, even just highlighting this. We need to have the conversation and we need to be more open about it. Uh, the reality is the world that we're living in today does not match the world that we used to live in. And there's a lot of reasons that we need to be open to accepting formula as an alternative. You look at what it means to become a parent or even to be a parent in today's world. There's more adoption, surrogacy, same-sex couples, moms who have a double mastectomy, underlying health conditions. I mean, you name it. Mastitis. so many. Mastitis. Mastitis. I mean, that is that was my issue. I don't think that a lot of men crazy. understand how serious it is and how... Uh, and how widespread it is. In any case, it's been great talking to you, and I hope we can talk to you again, Laura. Um, uh, I've, I'm obviously interested in the subject, and we are all all interested in um, starting these businesses and, and helping our society grow in a faster and healthier way. Laura Modi is the CEO and co-founder of Bobby. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.